Broadcasting from the James Baldwin Seminar Room in the Department of Ethnic Studies, the first Department of Ethnic Studies in the eastern United States at Bowling Green State University, where James Baldwin taught in 1970 and 1971. This is Real CRT. I'm your host and professor of ethnic studies here at Bowling Green State University, Tim Messer-Cruz. Real CRT is the podcast that explores the misrepresentations and lies regarding what critical race theory actually is, and interviews and discusses CRT with many of its leading scholars. I'm joined today with uh, my fellow thought criminals and uh, mental outlaws and conceptual fugitives, John Jama, Amanda, Cheris, Jason, and Alex. All right, guys. Uh, we have had... Uh, Quite an eventful week in many ways. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've been following is, uh, of course, all the new legislation that is dropping around the country trying to censor certain ideas, what they call divisive concepts. Uh, basically, the thought police are on the march. And uh, some, of these, some of these bills are quite interesting. I was, uh, I was actually amused by Virginia this last week. Uh, House Bill number 781 introduced into Virginia last week. Uh, it, it shares most of the template of a lot of these anti-critical race theory, anti-free thought laws. Uh, except, uh, interestingly, this one uh, tries to be proactive and positive as opposed to just outlawing concepts. It, it stipulates a number of concepts which every classroom in Virginia needs to teach. So for example, of course, uh, every, every classroom, uh, every, every class needs to teach uh, the founding documents of the United States, including the Declaration of Independence, the US Constitution, the Federalist Papers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was struck by in this list of things that Virginia schools must teach is also, quote, the first debate between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, unquote. Uh, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, of course, never debated each other. Uh, they're thinking of the great Illinois Senator Stephen Douglass. Uh, and and uh, I got to thinking about this. Uh, this is not the only state that's requiring in its uh, specified curriculum now to teach the debate between Lincoln and Douglass. Uh, 
I wonder if the if the sponsors of these bills have the slightest notion of what Lincoln and Douglas actually talked about. Because if they did, they would realize that by requiring studying this debate, they are actually perfectly illustrating one of the key points of critical race theory. And that is that race is politically, socially, culturally structural in America. Because for this reason, and it's 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 somewhat simple and elegant. You see, uh, Stephen Douglas was uh, the sitting U.S. Senator of Illinois in 1858 when these debates happened. Uh, he was a Democrat, and Abraham Lincoln was his challenger. He was a Whig. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, he was a Whig earlier in his career. He was a Republican. So the two major parties, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, we're debating in 1858. This is the Douglas-Lincoln debates. In other words, this is the full spectrum of American political discussion on display between Lincoln and Douglas. Of course, there were other factions, but they were Southern factions. Uh, both the, the Democrats, of course, had a Southern wing, which was simply pro-slavery. It was just spread-eagled pro-slavery, and eventually they would secede with the Confederacy. So, so we know that we know where those folks stood, right? I mean, the pro-slavery Southern faction was clearly racist, right? But what about the Republicans and the Democrats? Uh, it would see you could it would seem that you could make an argument that American government and politics was structurally racist if every single political party was racist in America. Well. Um, I, I, I pulled out some of the uh, transcript of the first debate between Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to read pages and pages and pages. These were, in the, eight, in the 19th century, uh, debates were a spectator sport. So they went on for hours and hours. Um, let, me just, let me just skip down to the part where Douglas describes his view of the Negro, as he refers to it. He says... Um, I am opposed to Negro citizenship in any and every form. Loud cheers from the audience. I believe this government was made on the white basis. More cheers. I believe it was made by white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity forever. And I am in favor of confining citizenship to white men, men of European birth and descent, instead of conferring it upon Negroes, Indians, and other inferior races. Shouts from the crowd of, good for you, Douglas forever, hurrah. Okay, that was Douglas. That was the Democratic position. What was the Republican position in 1858? What was Lincoln's position? This is from Lincoln's rejoinder to Douglas that night. He said, I have no purpose to introduce political and social equality between the white and the black races. There is a physical difference between the two, which in my judgment will probably forever forbid their living together upon the footing of equality. And inasmuch as it becomes a necessity that there must be a difference, I, as well as Judge Douglas, am in favor of the race to which I belong, having the superior position. I have never said anything to the contrary, but I hold that notwithstanding all this, there is no reason in the world why the Negro is not entitled to all the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence, that being the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Loud cheers from the crowd. I hold that he is as much entitled to these as the white man. I agree with Judge Douglas. He is not my equal in many respects, certainly not in color, 
perhaps not in moral or intellectual endowment, but in the right to eat bread without leave of anybody else, which his own hand earns, he is my equal. That was the Republican position, also in favor of white supremacy, also against citizenship, but conceding perhaps that black folks can eat bread. That's the political spectrum in 1858. Um, I'm not sure that the politicians who are requiring that students study this stuff uh, have the slightest notion of what they're actually requiring. Okay, panel, what do you think? So I'm generally inclined, you know, just by disposition to agree with the uh, hypothesis that the people introducing these bills don't really understand the full ramifications of these bills. And genuinely, I think that's kind of my default position most of the time when I am talking about legislators, and particularly state legislatures talking about CRT, is they are often quite ignorant of their own positions and authority and, you know, kind of what they might be doing in this world. In this case, you know, maybe that's actually a good thing, right? Um, if the, you know, lack of understanding of the source content they're uh, putting out is sort of undermining this cause of kind of trying to sweep racism under the rug of U.S. history in our public schools, then I'm glad that they're bad at being essentially bad leaders, um, or, or who knows? Maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, and maybe there are some very progressive people in the Virginia legislature who are like, all right, I think I got a plan. I'm going to sneak it by them. <laughs> sneak it in. Um, and <laughs> right by framing it positively, you know, rather than negatively. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, because it's hard to argue against Abraham Lincoln right. in Indeed. the state legislature. Mm -hmm. So regardless of whether this is a case of someone trying to be racist and failing at it, or someone trying to be progressive and being successful at it, I guess I'm in favor of this one. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, absolutely. Students should be studying more primary sources in their uh, history textbooks. Um, I had a uh, high school history teacher who was very big on this idea that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. No, it was fought over states' rights and economic differences. And, you know, it's like never quite going into what states' rights in particular were in question uh, with the Civil War. And, of course, the thing that really kind of sunk that argument for me as I grew older and wiser and more educated was actually reading the Articles of Secession and, like, oh, yeah, no, the – Mississippi uh, statement of we're not the United States anymore mentions slavery, mentions white supremacy. Same with the Texas Articles of Secession and that the Confederacy very explicitly was talking about white supremacy and slavery in their reasons for being the Confederacy. So, you know, the idea that the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery, like, well, Jefferson Davis disagrees with you there, Mr. Cahow. Um and so I think having a more primary source focused uh, high school, middle school curriculum is going to make it harder to sweep things under the rug. And certainly not that you can't, if you believe in yourself um, and, you know, select your sources correctly. Um, but uh, yeah, so this, this strikes me as a win. Uh, I want to welcome Amanda to our group. Thanks. Uh, so 
I just, I'm struck. So you said that the bill was introduced and they specifically name this debate between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, correct? Yes, indeed. Like that's what it says in the, the law. That's what it says in the law. Yes. <sighs> so, yeah, again, I'm with Alex. Like, was this intentional? Was this just sheer ignorance? Because technically, if it says the debate between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, which never actually took place, <laughs> there's nothing to study. Right. Well, I, I, I did read that uh, they have they have swiftly revised the, the text of the bill uh, as a result of the public embarrassment of this being uh, being widely publicized. So now they do have Stephen Douglas, although I haven't checked to see if they spelled Douglas correctly mm -hmm. because Frederick Douglas is with two S's and, and Stephen Douglas clearly is with one. they still haven't read the actual transcript no, they because had they not. had they read it, they might have realized that Abraham Lincoln's always held up as this like, you know, heroic uh, savior of the black population in America. I mean, what mm -hmm. what better uh, figure to uh, throw under the bus than Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> that really does kind of bring the house of cards down in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. I, I'm with Alex. Like, I think this is a win <laughs> once <laughs> students actually start reading it. Um, but it, in the wrong hands, right? It can, ah, here we go. Yet another example of, you know, America was founded as a white nation and, and should continue to be a white nation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you show the point that every political party at the time of these debates were inherently racist and overtly expressed this white supremacy viewpoint. And I was just reviewing a bill coming through the Ohio State Senate. And one of the, the things that is, is not allowed in Ohio is uh, divisive concepts that promote that the United States is fundamentally racist, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that this dialogue that is, you know, in, in the public record, in the historical record, actually demonstrates that, demonstrates that there were racist foundations to the political parties at this time uh, and include one of our prominent historical figures, Lincoln. Um, and so I, I, I wonder, how do you represent history accurately when you have to revise it and leave things out? Yep. Um, and that that's, uh, I think, telling in itself. So, we'll, you know, with this patchwork of anti-CRT divisive concept bills, students across America maybe can get together and figure out the truth. Yeah, but, I, right. I'm, you know, right. uh, yeah, that's a, a bit concerning. That, exactly right, Jason. I think actually a more honest approach was uh, New Hampshire this last week. HB 1255 introduced this last week. Uh, it's actually more honest than these other bills because it simply states, quote, no teacher shall advocate any doctrine or theory promoting a negative account or representation of the founding and history of the United States of America. No negative accounts. Well, that's going to be a tough one because if you look There's at- There's only so many unicorns and rainbows right, to go around. Right, If, if yeah. you're looking at primary source material, it's not going to be a pretty picture. <laughs> it keeps social studies class short. Very short, yes.
Well, uh, Professor Kennedy, this is my students. <laughs> Ethnic Studies 6800 here at Bowling Green State University. And um, I, want, I want to uh, just uh, begin by introducing our distinguished speaker, Randall Kennedy. Uh, Randall Kennedy is the Michael Klein Professor at Harvard Law School. Uh, he was educated at Princeton, Oxford, and Yale Law, uh, among other many accomplishments and uh, marks on his CV. He was uh, a law clerk for Thurgood Marshall at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he is the author of many books and numerous articles, all of them very impactful on the field of law and uh, ethnic studies and critical race theory. Uh, his most recent is uh, Say It Loud on Race, Law, History, and Culture, which came out last year. Uh, to some resounding reviews, I was looking them over today and uh, very well received. Um, not surprised, of course. Um, and uh, for today, of course, um, we all read uh, Professor Kennedy's uh, seminal article in the Harvard Law Review from 1989 very much at the beginnings of the critical race theory movement, uh, racial critiques of legal academia. And uh, Professor Kennedy, I just, for my own part, I want to say that uh, reading this again, I, I read it several years ago, but probably without the uh, care that I took this time. Um, it, uh, it really struck me as holding up uh, quite well. And in particular, I was, I was really, uh, really, uh, impressed by its clarity, its rigor, its insight, and, uh, and also something that you allude to in the text itself, and that's the courage it took to write it. Um, and and it's, it's very clear in the, in the article that you had reservations and hesitancies in putting this article together. Uh, did any of your fears and hesitancies come to pass? What, what's happened in the 35 years since this article? First of all, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to join with, with you and your colleagues there. I'm very happy to be a part of this and happy to talk about that article. Um, it, it, was a, it was an article that meant an awful lot to me. Um, I began the article actually when I was clerking for Justice Marshall. Um, it, it, it was an article that grew over a number of years. I, I, was, I was working for Justice Marshall, and one evening I read uh, an article by uh, Richard Delgado, the imperial scholar, and I wrote, I just, I, just, I just typed up a few pages of response, and, but put, put it to the side. And then over, you know, over time, these, these, you know, discussions, debates would come up. And I, over time, this thing developed. To answer your question directly, yeah, a lot, you know, this, this article definitely had consequences for me. Um, I, uh, I was happy to publish it. Um, you know, people talk about courage. The fact of the matter is nobody was going to um, take me off to the gulag because I published this article. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, no, nobody was going to uh, imprison me. Nobody was going, you know, the, the pe 
now, you know, no, no, nothing of that nature was going to happen to me. There are people, across, of course, there are people in the world uh, for whom things like that do happen. Indeed. Um, but fortunately, fortunately, uh, no, I, I, I didn't have to worry about that. Did I have to worry about disapproving colleagues? Yes, I did. Um, one colleague, uh, one colleague who really disapproved of this, and he was a friend and a colleague. Uh, he was my senior. He had helped me a lot. Derek Bell asked me not to publish this. Uh -huh. And he wrote me a letter saying, you know, do not publish this. This will be used by our enemies. You know, don't do it. And I wrote him back and I said, I, you know, I've read your letter. I hear what you're saying, but I just want to, you know, I am, I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not yanking the piece. And it really did cause quite a split with him and me for many years, not until, not until soon before he died, did we start speaking again. And I have other colleagues. There, there, there are people in legal academia who I think to this day hate me because I wrote that piece. There are people who, with whom I had previously, you know, spoken and been perfectly, you know, been cordial, cordial relations. Um, I have not, there, there are some people with whom I have not spoken since this piece was published. So, hmm. you know, um, I, I think in some people's eyes, this was um, a very bad thing to publish, but you know, again, um, I don't, I, I feel perfectly happy that it was published. I still stand by much of it. Yeah. Um, do you think any of, uh, Derek Bell's concerns played out? What was it used by any of the enemies yes. of racial equality? Yes. On that he was, he, yes. And I think, you know, you have to live with that. Um, Mm -hmm. he, he he was right. No, there were some people. Sure, there were people. I mean, I, I heard from people, and not just heard from, I and mean, it's part of the public record. There are people who <clears throat> basically uh, took this piece and, you know, their basic message was, well, here you have a guy, he's sort of a left liberal and he's black, for God's sakes, <laughs> uh, who's, you know, saying some, you know, you know, pretty negative things about some of this literature that's calling itself, you know, critical, you know, in fact, people right. weren't really using that they were they called themselves critical race theory. It was really in the it was the beginning of it. But, you know, were there people who use this polemically and in a way that I don't appreciate? Yes. There were. Sure. And, the, you know, the question is, you know, what do I do about that? And I think that's a I think that's a really interesting and tough question. If you're writing about volatile, um, you know, controversial issues and you take a position that you think will be used in bad ways. Right. What do you do? Right. And my basic view is that um, whenever you publish anything, 
it's sort of out of your hands. Mm -hmm. people, people are, people are going to use it all sorts of ways. Right. And um, I try to be as clear as I can. I try to be as clear, as clear, as clear as I can. But I know that once it's published, it's out of my hands. And, um, and that's that. Right. I found that uh, people who take opposing views are much easier to accept than those who misrepresent my own statements. Do, do, you, do you feel that your statements were misrepresented? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, frankly, again, you know, people do all sorts of things. People, you know, people say, well, you said this. Right. And I, you know, no, I didn't say, hold on, no, I didn't say that. Right, right. But, you know, what, what, what do you, what do you, what do you do? I, like I say, right. I try to be as clear as I can and it's out, it's out in the discussion. Yeah, as it should be. Let me ask some of my uh, students questions. Uh, Amanda asks, uh, racial critiques was published over 30 years ago. Have your concerns about the methodology of Delgado, Bell, and Matsuda articulated in the article changed any over this time? Have my concerns changed? Yes. No, my concerns have not changed. In fact, some of the points that some of the some of the points that I made, and in fact, I'd say the most important points that I made um, are still with us. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, you know, a very important point, and it's, it's gone beyond legal academia, it's gone beyond academia, it's part of our, you know, it's, it's just, it's part of our culture, the whole question of racial boundaries on research, racial boundaries on writing. So, you know, basically, you know, part of what Richard, you know, this, this whole idea of, you know, insider insight, insider insight. So some people, because of, I don't know, their, you know, their, their race, their nationality, their gender, um, are we supposed to have a presumption that some people, because of their status, because of their race, their gender, their nationality, their religion, maybe, um, should we have a presumption that those that status gives them a certain insight, that that status certifies them in a certain way, gives mm -hmm. them, you know, should we give them, I don't know, extra leeway, extra points because they are something. And, you know, one of my strongest arguments or one of the things that, ups, you know, that, that animated me the most was to say, no, no. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the intellectual, we should, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. If, you, if, you bake, if you bake a pie <laughs> and you say this is a good pie, yeah. Doggone it. Give me a fork. I want to taste it. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't tell me, don't tell me, you know, I'm such and such. I come from, I'm, I come from Georgia. Right. And therefore my Georgia peach cobbler is going to be good. Well, hold it. Fine. You come from, I want to taste the pie. Right.
one of our one of the students in the class asked a related question, but from the other perspective, Cheris asks, um, "How could white people in academia study and publish on black issues without it being performative or speaking over black voices? Are the voices of white academics publishing on black issues worthwhile?" with such a high risk of those white academics speaking over and co-opting the knowledge of black academics? First of all, you know, again, I, I, my own take on that is um, I would, I, the realm of culture, the realm of knowledge, the realm of research, as far as I'm concerned, there should be no boundaries around it. As for whites writing about, you know, let's say black culture, as far as I'm concerned, um, thank goodness for Eric Foner. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness for Kenneth Stamp. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness for Herbert Apfecker. Mm -hmm. Um you know, white, wonderful scholars, all of whom, by the way, especially the three that I just mentioned, are tremendous contributors to the intellectual work of Black and other scholars. I mean, Herbert Aptheker was W.E.B. Du Bois's literary executor. Well, mm -hmm. you know, W.E.B. Du Bois was no shrinking violet. He was no, he, he, you know, he knew something about black culture. A thing or two, yeah. He knew a thing or two. Yeah. Herbert Apthecker was his chosen yeah. literary executor. I mean, I, you know, no. Right. What we need is knowledge. And um, do I think that, you know, do I think that white scholars, because of their you know, whiteness or better than black scholars? No. <laughs> Do I think that white scholars, because of their whiteness, are necessarily less than blacks? Again, no. Mm -hmm. If a black scholar, so for instance, there's a there's a historian, very distinguished historian, uh, at Princeton. His name is uh yeah, um Jordan, Professor Jordan, I forget his first name. Mm -hmm. He is a historian of med medieval Europe is his subject. Yeah. If somebody was to say, hey, Professor Jordan, good try, but come on. You know good and wells that, you know, you can't be the leading scholar in the world about medieval Europe, you, you know, medieval Europe. As far as I'm concerned, no, that's no. Uh, yes, he can be. Sure. He can be the leading scholar in the world about medieval Europe. His, his status ought not be, you know, held against him. There should be no presumption that he can't be as insightful, as knowledgeable as anybody else. I'll stop there. There's not a medieval voice that he's lacking because he didn't live. No, no, there's no, yeah. there's not a need, you know, no, I don't, I'm, 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 that was a, 
a, a something that was, you know, was really gnawing at me. It was bothersome to me. And what I wrote there is what I believe in. The thing is, you talked about, you know, the 30 years. The fact of the matter is, however, that um, the ideas against that the ideas I was pushing against then mm-hmm. have actually become stronger. True. And, uh, you know, I, they've, you know, peep, peep, these, these ideas, you, you, but they've also uh, in a way become sort of dis, dis, uh, connected to the question of affirmative action because in the 1980s, these, these subjects, uh, such as voice, positionality, and so forth, were very connected to the question of, 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 of whether institutions should open up and, uh, and so forth. Today, of course, they've kind of moved into their own realm, and institutions no longer even really talk about affirmative action in the way that was talked about in the 1980s. They don't, but um, they don't. The lingo has changed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I, you know, I am a proponent. I have been a proponent of affirmative action. I've written in defense of affirmative action. I still do. One thing, though, that always that, that, that has bothered me and still bothers me is actually the leading justification, you know, this sort of the different voice idea, the different um, when the, 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 the idea that. Um, our status says something says something deep mm-hmm. about our thinking. Mm-hmm. So you know, diversity. You know, I mean, the, the the leading justification for diversity is well, we need to have a lot of you know, we need to have diverse voices, diverse perspectives. And to get diverse voices and diverse perspectives, we are going to use the racial uh, status of people as a cert, as a sort of a a proxy for those things. Right. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't. I I think that's a very dangerous. I don't like that. I think that that. I think that that has a very bad can have very bad consequences for academia and it has it has yeah and it is very powerful and uh again i am a defender i am a proponent i am a champion of affirmative action but i don't like the idea of a person is a certain thing right fill in the box i don't care Right. White, black, I, I don't care. Southerner, right. northerner. And therefore, we can um, make inferences about what they think, how they think. We can make inferences about their insight right. or their lack of insight. No, you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but you ground affirmative action in questions of redistributive justice, racial yes. justice. Yes. Uh, and that seems a much more firm foundation in many ways. And one that of course is more threatening (laughs) to university administrators than the idea that we'll create a better campus environment for all our students. 
Yeah, well, you know, frankly, the primary, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, 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 the you know, the biggest problem in that story is the Supreme Court of the United States. Indeed. Because it was, the, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States said, we don't want to hear about redistribution. We don't want to hear about re reparatory justice. Right. The only thing we're willing to allow yeah. is this idea of, you know, we want a lot of different people from a lot of different places and we'll have better conversation. Right. So, of course, when the Supreme Court said that, you know, the administrators said, okay, fine, we'll talk that talk. And they right. have been ever since. And they only have one tool in the toolbox now, and that's the tool. And that's the tool. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Shelby asks, um, Alex Johnson's reply to your work discusses what he refers to as extreme objective standards and says that those kind of standards can be isolating and that scholars may never live up to these expectations. Have your thoughts on, on what you wrote about objectivity or the critiques of your objectivity, um, how have they changed in these, in these 35 years? I don't think I ever suggested that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't think I ever suggested that, um, I don't think I was a champion of, quote, objectivity. I recognize that there's almost going to be unavoidably a lot of subjectivity. Right. You know, do you, you know, what do you think of this article? Well, you could, you know, I, I have plenty of smart colleagues. Some, some of my smart colleagues think such and such an article is really good. Then mm -hmm. I you know, then I have another smart colleagues who think that it's not very good. There's going to be subjectivity. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't deny that. Um, I just, you know, I, I, it's, there's going to be subjectivity. There's going to be lots of debate. There's going to be lots of clashes of points of view. I, I think that's inevitable. Um, the only thing, you know, I just, I just want to keep out. I want to rule out. I want to rule out of academic order mm -hmm. the proposition that a person, because of their status, mm -hmm. starts off with points, either pluses or minuses, because of their status. Right. That, that I want to rule that out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now, you know, yeah, we're going to fight about, you know, there's going to be unending discussion about, you know, is this good or is this bad? I, I just wanted to rule out certain things. That was one of the, that was one of the things I wanted to rule out. Right. What if we, what if we uh, move on a little bit further about thinking about meritocratic systems of evaluation? Um, Alex wonders if one of the problems with meritocratic systems of evaluation as they've, as they've long stood in academia, uh, he wonders if they privilege viewpoints which support the status quo, Keynesianism and economics, continental tradition and philosophy, and so on. Um, do, do you agree? Do you see that there's possibly a way in which existing academic meritocratic systems are, are deeply supportive of 
conventional status quo thinking or, and is that a problem? Sure I do. And yes, I mean, you know, these, you know, I mean, look, the, the history of higher education in the United States, uh, certain ideas have been terribly marginalized. Uh, you know, if you, if you said, if you, if, if you were a socialist in 1950, uh, don't go looking for a job or 1960 or 1970 for that matter. <laughs> don't go looking for a job in many, uh, economics departments. Right. Right. If you, you know, I mean, uh, if you were brilliant, 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 absolutely brilliant. You'd have read everything. And you, and you said, I've read everything I've, you know, I've, I've written 50 books. Oh, and by the way, I admire Karl Marx. Forget it. <laughs> so the answer is, I'm, you know, absolutely. Um, uh, there has been ideological repression. There was ideological repression at my school. I, I have been a member of the faculty of Harvard Law School since the summer of 1984. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I uh, I applaud much about Harvard Law School, but was there ideological repression at Harvard Law School? Yes, there was. In the uh, 1990s, uh, the higher ups at Harvard University took the position that they were not going to allow more people associated with critical legal studies. Mm to be hired and to be promoted. Mm -hmm. And that happened. There was an ideological purge mm -hmm. at my law school. So yes, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of uh, the way in which people who, you know, ideas on top, you know, they, they create their own, you know, metrics and they, you know, tend to uh, you know, promote thinkers that think like them. I, I'm aware of that. Here's the thing, though, and of course, that's what Richard Delgado was saying in you know the Imperial Scholar. Basically, he was saying white liberal scholars are going to promote. They're going to talk amongst themselves. They're going to argue among themselves. They are going to champion themselves, and they are going to marginalize others. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, here's a question. And I think the, the, the passage of 30 years helps with, or you know, helps with this question. If that is true to, to the extent that Richard Delgado was positing, how does one explain the persistence? And the enlargement of, for instance, critical race theory. Mm -hmm. I mean, critical race theory has been around. Uh, it is, uh, you know, I mean, there are many places where, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, whom I, you know, I, I uh, admire in many ways. She's a professor. Where is she a professor? She's not a professor at 
some you know unknown place. She's a professor at UCLA and she's a professor at Columbia Law School. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I mean, Columbia, that's not some you know hidden out of the way place. Um, Richard Delgado has been a professor at a number of law schools. He's a professor now at the University of Alabama Law School. Well, the University of Alabama, what? Again, he's, you know, it's not some out of the way place. One could go down the list. Uh, who are so? Derek Bell was a professor at Harvard Law School. He left Harvard Law School. Did he go to the wilderness? No, he didn't go to the wilderness. He went to the New York University Law School, one of the great law schools of the world. I mean, if 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 the, I mean, it seems to me that one question that needs to be put to Professor Delgado is if these imperial scholars are as, you know, if they, if they marginalize, you know, people who don't agree with them to the extent that you say, how does one explain the prominence of critical race theory? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and by the way, and other theories that have been at odds with the people who he calls the imperial scholars. So, you know, I don't have a, you know, it's, it seems to me that's a question that people should ask. Yeah. And, and for full disclosure, I invited Professor Delgado to uh, join us as well. And uh, our schedules couldn't align, but perhaps in a future semester, maybe he will. Um, okay, this is from uh, Cheris. And uh, she notes that uh, because academia is still predominantly white, many white academics and administrators expect black academics to fix or resolve racial issues in academia? How can the focus shift from black academics to white academics and others in terms of accountability? And how can black academics set boundaries to make sure they aren't tasked with solving the problem of racism? Mm -hmm. That's a nice question. I mean, my response is that um, the problem of racism, the problem of sexism, the problem of all sorts of bad prejudices are everybody's problem. They're, you know, a problem for black professors, Latino professors, Asian American professors, white professors, everybody. I, I, it seems to me that these these things are everybody's problem, and everybody, uh, I think, has an obligation to do what they can to uh, productively address these. Now, I, I think that what the questioner may might you know probably had in mind was situations in which there. The, I I do have black colleagues who have have complained about, well, you know, there's an issue that comes up and doggone it, you know, yeah, I'm willing to do my part, but I don't want to be, you know, I don't, you know, every trip of the train, they're looking at me wanting me to do something. You know, I've, I've got articles to write. I've got yeah. books to write. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, yeah, I think that, you know, a black professor should, 
you know, yeah, do their part, but do their part. Uh, that, you know, at a certain point, hey, I've done what I could do or I've done what I feel like I want to do. Uh, go talk with somebody else. And, you know, no. And I, I, let, me, let me add one more thing. And this comes up, I, I mainly hear this around students. I have heard students, in particular, I've heard black students complain saying the following. Um, I don't want to, I don't want, I, you know, I don't want my white roommate or I don't want another white colleague of mine to ask me about blotchity blotch mm -hmm. because I don't want to, you know, it's not my job to educate them. I've heard that. Mm -hmm. I'm very resistant to that. Because in my view, um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, uh, teachers and students, we're all in the education game. So if some white kid from some little town in, I don't know, Nebraska, finds himself in a room and, you know, is night next to, you know, I don't know, African-American kid from, let's say, Harlem. And the white kid turns to the black kid and says, you know, uh, I've never been around, I've never been around many black people. In fact, maybe the white kid says, I've never been around black people, period. I've read a little bit about black people. Uh, I've read a little bit, you know, I've read a little bit about Harlem and then the white kid says, is it true? And then ask a whole series of questions. As far as I'm concerned, I don't, I don't think that the white kid is doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, you know, I mean, again, you, you, I don't. I wouldn't want to be there for you know an hour answering questions. <laughs> but what's wrong with answering questions? And then you know, frankly, me saying, you know what? Let me. You've asked me a few questions. I've answered a few. Now I got a couple questions because <laughs> see. I've never been to Nebraska and I've never been to some little town in Nebraska. And I don't, you know, frankly, I don't know many, you know, white people in little towns in Nebraska. And uh, here's some questions I have. <laughs> I, and I, what's, wrong yeah. with, what's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with people that? People who are, you know, curious, asking questions. I don't see anything wrong with that. In fact, in fact, here we are, a white kid from a small town in Nebraska asking a black man from Columbia, South Carolina, some questions. Are you from Nebraska? I am from a small town in Nebraska. That's funny. I was trying, I was trying to get the most stereotypical thing I could, and I, and I got something that actually hit home. Okay. You did. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, this, is, uh, this is from my colleague, uh, Jason Whitfield. Uh, he asks, uh, when discussing the pool problem, 
as an alternative explanation to the underrepresentation of black faculty in the legal academy. Uh, you state that, a, a, quote, a statistic, after all, is never self-explanatory. It always requires interpretation. Uh, Jason goes on, as a scientist and a quantitative researcher, he very much agrees with that sentiment. Uh, he also agrees that alternative hypotheses should be logically considered. While a tightly controlled scientific experiment might help answer this question, no such controlled environment exists with dynamic interacting systems of life and culture. Mm -hmm. Critical analyses like CRT, like critical race theory, seem to provide a method for questioning dynamically interacting systems that may serve to preserve ideologies that, that, that uh, consider the values of able-bodied Christian heterosexual white males as standard mm -hmm. and ensure that those who hold power are and remain predominantly white. So is your primary concern with Bell's, Derek Bell's limited interpretation of the lack of diverse representation? Uh, or is it with CRT as a methodology or lens with which to analyze those systems? Um, if you feel that CRT is a, do you feel this, uh, that CRT as a theory and method is more flawed than it is helpful? Uh, how do you recommend approaching such complex interactional questions that involve racialized systems and power dynamics? Big okay. question. Yeah. It is a big question, it's a good question. Couple things. First, on the question of CRT methodology, forget about liking or dislike, you know, forget about the normative stance. A really good book could be written with the following title, what is CRT? Because, you know, what does it take what does it take to be a critical race theorist? Frankly, all it takes is somebody saying, I am a critical race theorist. Right now, I could become, right at this moment, if I said, I am a critical race theorist, okay? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm there. I mean, you've got a wide range of, my, my colleague who just passed away, wonderful person, Lonnie Guineer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Critical race theory? Mm -hmm. You could, you could say critical race theory. On the other hand, there was much that Lonnie Guineer wrote that is not very, you know, frankly, no, you know, not very different than what a left liberal you know, person who's not identified critical race theory would have written. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, so I, frankly, I don't really know what people mean by a critical race theory methodology. I see there are lots of people who have called themselves critical race theorists, who have all sorts of different methodologies so I don't, I don't, I don't know. Has, has that question become fuzzier as time goes on? Was that more clear back in the 1980s? No, I don't think it was more clear. I has it become more fuzzy? Yeah, it's become more fuzzy because there are more people. And yeah. now it's become especially fuzzy in the last year when critical race theory has basically become a, a slogan and a, uh, a boogeyman for people to attribute all sorts of ideas to it. Mm -hmm. uh, many of which are very far-fetched and that, you know, people, you know, 
nobody really believes. Um, but so that that that's a problem. On the question of, you know, um, the the question gets back to I, I am fully willing to uh, acknowledge that there are prejudices in academia, prejudices that cover themselves up and that rationalize themselves and that, and that you know, put themselves forward as merit. Does that happen? Yes, that happens. And the question is, okay, when that happens, when you think that people are saying, oh, this work is meritorious. It's telling us deep truths. It should be, it, it, these, this work should be uh, embraced. And you criticize, and you know, and you, and you say, well, actually, no. I think it's weak. <laughs> it's not strong, it's weak. And it's wrong for the following five reasons. Fine, I'm all I'm down with that. I don't, I don't see any problem with that. Uh, give your reasons. Um, I just say be open. So to go back to the pool problem, question. Uh, we have a uh, a department, and let's suppose that the, the department is a department with, I don't know, let, 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 let's change things up. Let's make it a department with five black people on it. Mm -hmm. Five black people. And then a white person says, oh, um, the reason why you've got five black people is because of an illicit preference for black people. Um, you all have been actually marginalizing, you've been keeping out some other people, white people, people, you know, Latino people, people of Asian American ancestry, whatever. You've been keeping out some non-black people, but you've been you've been covering it up, and this is a sham meritocracy. Mm -hmm. My view could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a hypothesis. It's a sham meritocracy. And let's test it out. Now, that might be correct. On the other hand, it might not be correct. It might not be correct. Um, it might be that the reason why this department has, you know, Professor A, B, C, D, E, F... They all happen to be black. And let's imagine that somebody's challenging this and the person says, you know what? These five people, I will, I will defend the presence of these five against all comers. Get the work out. Mm -hmm. Who do you... Get the people that you think 
should be in place of these people. And let's and let and let's let's go to it. Yeah. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's what should be done. So, for instance, and now on this one, by the way, this is this is a part of what I wrote that really some people really, really dislike me for. They really dislike me because, you know, we're talking about people's jobs here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But one of the things that really bothered me in the way that uh, Professor Delgado approached it, I mean, basically, he said, you know, these guys, he basically said, uh, he, and I would say that, and I would credit Derek Bell too, sometimes when at, you know, he would say, well, my folks, the people I like, are not being cited, they're not being quoted, they're not being feted, they're not being lauded, they're not give, being given the you know, position. And it's because of their, you know, their race. Now, again, Lord knows, has that happened in American society? Absolutely. Are you kidding? <laughs> right. For sure. It's only recently that, you know, there are a whole, you know, there are, you know, until until relatively recently, there are a whole pack of schools we, who excluded people, you know, scholars because of their race. So, you know, absolutely that has happened, that can happen, that is a danger. And if that's happening, it should be attacked. But what I say is, if you are going to if you are going to say that, what is the persuasive way to say that? You can't just say, my you know my you know my people, the people that I like, didn't get the job, didn't get the position, didn't get the you know weren't cited because of their race. That's your hypothesis. But you've got to go further and you've got to at least say they ought to have gotten the job. They ought to have been cited. They ought to have gotten the position because of the virtue of their work. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I really objected to with Professor Delgado he didn't say very much right. about the work that he was championing. Mm -hmm. He talked about people's the race. You know, Kennedy is black. But what the hell? He didn't he didn't talk about my work. So so I have a question. Um, I was thinking a lot about the way that you discuss questions of uh, what you refer to as a proxy, proxy identity proxies of identity. Um, and here we've, some of your uh, critics here have referred to the, the voice of color and so forth. Um, so one of the things that struck me throughout this debate, both, both you and your interlocutors are both thinking about the black voice or the voice of color in terms of individualism, that it's an individual quality. What if could it be reframed as a group quality that, in general, uh, because of the history of racism, structural and informal uh, in America, there are groups that have, you could say, on margin, 
have experiences that other groups have not had. And being a member of such a group, even though you may not individually have had such experiences, that membership itself should count for something. Uh, I think that's a nice way of putting it. I would agree that, you know, just as a sociological matter, yes, we know, you know, we, we, we know that certain groups have endured certain experiences. And not only do we know that, but we know that as a sociological matter, um, that leads to certain probabilities. So, and, and, and these probabilities show themselves in real life. If I was a lawyer representing a person charged with a capital crime, that is to say charged with, you know, with some jurisdiction where they could get the death penalty, and I had a, you know, I had potential jurors in front of me. I didn't know anything about these jurors. I didn't know their names. I didn't know nothing about them, but I could see them. If I was representing a defendant and I didn't know anything about the jurors, but I could see the jurors, what would be one of my, what, what would I be thinking? One of the things I'd be thinking is I'm going to try to get as many black people in this jury as possible. Do I know the thinking of each black person? No, no, I do not. You know, um, Clarence Thomas is quite friendly to capital punishment. Indeed. Um, why would I be thinking the way I'm thinking? I'd be thinking the way I'm thinking because we know from, you know, questionnaire evidence, polling, we know just as a general matter that in the, you know, among black Americans, there is more, uh, resistance to capital punishment than in, you know, other communities. That doesn't mean that each black person, that doesn't say anything about a particular black person. That's just a question of probabilities. So, and you could take that on down the ladder. You could, you know, look at a lot of different things. You know, there are a lot of probabilistic things that you could say. Now, the reason why I take a strong position with respect to, you know, my academic rules is because frankly, remember my hypothetical. My hypothetical was I'm a lawyer looking at a room full of people about whom I don't know very much. In academia, that's not the way it works. We do know a good deal about the people in front of us. Mm -hmm. We talk with them, we get to question them, we get to ask them, what do you think? Mm -hmm. That's true. We don't have to resort to, you know, broad probabilistic thinking. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we ought to. So, you know, that, 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 that's how I would distinguish between the two. Can, you know, can one make generalizations about groups? Heck yes. 
you know, I mean, again, if you were, if you, if, if you had, if, if you had a room, let's say a hundred people in the room and you were asked to place bets and you, you know, you can't ask about, you know, just, just got a hundred people in the room, replacing bets and somebody, the question was, is this person a Trump supporter? Mm -hmm. And they pointed to, I don't, you know, African-American. If you didn't know anything, this person could be the biggest Trump supporter in the world. Mm -hmm. But if you did, if somebody gave me a hundred dollars and said, place your bet, <laughs> I'd say, no, nah, this person, nope. My bet is this person is not a Trump. I don't know much about this person. Mm -hmm. We do know, you know, again, probabilistically how things were. We do know about, you know, various sectors of the population and, you know, who they had, who their preferences were in the presidential contest. Again, for purposes of academic life, however, we don't have to resort to probabilities. We can go to the best evidence. And the best evidence is, what did this person write? What was, you know, we, we, we heard the lecture. Uh, what's our judgment about the lecture? Was it a well-organized lecture? Was it a lecture that, in which the person uh, uh, substantiated the thesis that they posited? You know, it seems to me that those are the things that we should be asking, um, you know, in, in, in academic life. Indeed, indeed. Well, we've, uh, we've kept you for nearly an hour, and uh, uh, I really want to thank you for taking some of your valuable time and sharing it with us and sharing your, your wisdom and your thoughts and your experience with us. Um, do you have any, uh, any parting wisdom for us? Um, number one, again, thank you. Two, I mean, how flattering. Uh, we have people who, you know, for all I know, there, there, there may be some people there who, you know, were probably, you know, might not have even been born or if they were born, they might've been toddlers when this thing was written. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how flattering that's it the is. Majority of the room. What? That's the majority of the room, I believe. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, okay. I mean, you know, point made, uh, you know, how flattering that, you know, this, this piece is still being, uh, written and discussed and, you know, again, I have friends, by the way, good friends whom I deeply respect, who, you know, disagree with, you know, parts of what I wrote or, you know, lots of what I wrote. I mean, I, again, I'm not, I don't, I'm not claiming infallibility. Uh, I'm very flattered that people are taking seriously what I had to say and um, how wonderful. One last thing. You all are graduate students. I really do. Um, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm past the middle of the journey. I have thoroughly enjoyed my life as an academic. I think it's a wonderful life, and I wish you all uh, good luck in pursuing your endeavors. 
Thanks a lot for having me. Take care. Thank, thank you, sir. Stay well. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, that was that was terrific. It was really, really great to talk with Professor Kennedy and um, kind of uh, he helped take us back, I think, to some of the arguments at the very founding of critical race theory and arguments that he was a part of. Um, what did you all think? I thought it was fascinating to listen to him. It was very interesting to learn his perspective on a work that he had written 20 plus years ago um, and kind of seeing the scholarship then versus the scholarship now and the disparities between them. Um, I feel like it was really worthwhile to be able to hear his viewpoints. I think it also proves that um, for me at least that not everybody who is in a certain demographic or group membership is necessarily going to take the same stance on critical race theory. You know, he's very critical of, at the time, and still is, you know, the methodology, the arguments being made. Um, I thought it was interesting. He said, who can become a critical race theorist? You know, anyone, as long as you call yourself that, yeah. you know. And uh -huh. to me, that that was a bit of a, you know, that's kind of a, it's kind of a harsh criticism for the folks that are doing the work out in the field right now and doing, yeah. doing the good work mm -hmm. um, and raising the question. Yeah, last week, uh, Professor Stovall had no difficulty defining what critical race theory was. And right. I thought his def definition was rather specific and, 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 and yet comprehensive. Right. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that is sort of raised through Dr. Kennedy's writing is this concept of meritocracy that uh, so much of his writing kind of orbits around. And how do we, as, you know, uh, as a university, as any sort of assessor of merit, what is our criterion for who is meritorious? And that is something that is, as far as I can see, always going to have some level of bias. There is always going to be the disposition of the assessor of what is the ideological framework uh, upon which we you say this is good scholarship, this is bad scholarship, and you know he mentioned that if you're a uh, applying for a job at an economics department in 1965 and say, yeah, man, I wrote my thesis on Karl Marx, it's like, well, you're not going to go very far in economics, and so right because economics has this strong bias towards Keynesian neoclassical synthesis as its sort of ideological viewpoint. And of course, law has these biases as well, right? The American legal tradition comes, has kind of underpinnings of liberalist values as the legacy of, you know, English common law, all of these things. 
and that is going to lead it to sort of promoting certain viewpoints, which tend to align with people who come from certain backgrounds and have certain experiences. You know, I, I took a, a few different things from the readings today and, and Dr. Kennedy's discussions. And um, one thing that I think is important from an academic and, and scholarly perspective is allowing space for disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. yep. And intellectually, um, it's important that ideas and theories and methodologies stand up to criticism Mm -hmm. and those that don't that aren't criticized um, should often be questioned Um, however we've seen from its inception critical race theory go through various permutations Mm -hmm. expand to address problems in different fields Um, and i think that speaks to the utility of the methodology and theory. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I thought was uh, laudable was that he was is okay with people disagreeing with him. And I think that mm-hmm. that's an yeah. important piece too. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of, you know, why there's, and besides the main thing of critical race theory just being kind of this stand-in for all sorts of boogeymen, you know, why there is also, it can be a a good magnet for controversy is because critical race theory does kind of run against doctrine. It, it, it challenges the liberal basis of American legal theory. Um, the same way that, you know, right, being that kind of one grouchy Marxist in your economics department, you know, it challenges Keynesian theory. Um, and, you know, whatever, if you're psychoanalytic theory in a psychology department in 1930. Take your choice. Every department is going to have their kind of, well, this is kind of our set of prior assumptions. And so any scholarship that is questioning the prior assumptions rather than building off of the prior assumptions is going to meet with resistance. It is going to be, in some cases, be deemed as bad scholarship because well, of course this, of course this is wrong because it's saying that you know John Maynard Keynes is wrong, or it's saying that you know the liberal you know basis of uh, American law is wrong, and we know these things are right. Ergo, you must be wrong, right? And so, how do we as uh, scholars deal with? Uh, the sort the opposing viewpoint. How do we deal with sort of the running upstream? The way we've traditionally dealt with it is just you go and join a different department that agrees with you more. <laughs> I was like, well, fine. Uh, I, I'm not going to be an economist anymore. I'm going to go be a cultural theorist. They love Marx over there. Um, and But that can lead to a lot, its own version of just kind of, right, playing to the party line. And so I don't have an answer for this, but kind of the question I want to kind of put in everyone's heads who's listening to this is who assesses the assessors and how do we, in a meritocratic environment, decide what has merit in the first place? Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. One thing that I'm left wrestling with um, after hearing Dr. Kennedy speak is trying to separate in my mind hearing viewpoints that are different from mine and accepting them in a way of understanding that 
we both have different life experiences and grew up and experienced very different times in society and culture. Um, I'm quite young and I'm nowhere close to his life experiences and the things that he's gone through. So reading through his scholarship um, and hearing him speak today, I very much disagreed with a lot of his viewpoints. But um, I, trying to take myself into accountability um, to understand that the language of then is different from now, and that's not to say that the scholarship and language of then was bad and old and outdated and we just shouldn't learn it anymore. It's important to know where we came from so that we know where we're going. Um, so I believe in that way, um, Dr. Kennedy's work is still very important to read um, and to listen to and to kind of gain insight from because if we don't understand what the scholarship was like at the time, how are we supposed to move forward? I think it helps sharpen our help and sharpen our debate skills too, because a lot of the the critiques that he was making then of scholars is eerily similar to some of the things we hear, the rhetoric we hear from opponents of supposedly CRT being taught in K through 12, mm -hmm. uh, right? This idea of attacking meritocracy and that saying that it's inherently racist, mm -hmm. right? I think he was in his own way, kind of defending meritocracy and saying, you know, white folks don't have a premium on meritocracy, mm -hmm. right? That there should be a standard of excellence across the board, mm -hmm. which I don't necessarily disagree with. However, we also have to reconcile with structures, social structures, especially when we talk about education and the, the disproportionate funding model where there are children that don't have the same resources. And so they're already at a disadvantage trying to pursue a life of a academia. Yes, I'm, I'm with you, Cheris. I'm also wrestling with, here's somebody who's very well-respected, prominent in his field, and is not apologetic at all for what he said in 1989, and today seem to be very much subscribing to the same ideas, um, which, you know, Okay. I mean, one could say that he's loyal to his views, but I also would hope that over 30 years that maybe with presented with new ideas or new information that you might shift just a little, but I didn't get the sense at all. Um, so I'm wrestling too with, you know, having strong disagreement, but then, okay, how can I use these disagreements as a way to sharpen my rebuttal for folks who might have similar arguments that they raise and being able to have a conversation that is civil, that is hopefully, um, you know, in a place where we can walk away having disagreed, but maybe having learned something from one another. Um, okay, thank you, everybody. This was great. Um, next week, we have Charles Gallagher joining us, talking about colorblindness. Uh, and uh, boy, I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Actually, he's been on my, uh, my undergraduate reading list for many years, so get to talk to him finally in person. I want to thank my fellow thought criminals, Jason, Alex, Cheris, John Jama, and Amanda, and also our musical artists, Airtone, Danilo Prates, and Texas Radio Fish. Okay, great. Thank you all. See you next week. This is Real CRT. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. 
Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. Victory's mine. One day. I'll tell you. Victory's mine. All around. One day. I'll tell you. One day.